Baker Hostetler's federal policy team, located in Washington, D.C., has its finger on the pulse of important policy debates on Capitol Hill. But the focus right now in the nation's capital is not on policy. It's on politics ahead of the important midterm elections November 8. And our federal policy team is here to break it all down for you. The overall national political environment and the latest details on key House and Senate races. I'm Randall Rubenking, and you are listening to Baker Hosts. On today's episode, we have former Congressman Heath Schuler, a senior advisor on Baker Hostetler's federal policy team, former Congressman Eric Paulson, election forecaster Jim Ellis, and Chris Jones, a senior advisor on Baker Hostetler's federal policy team. It's going to be an insightful discussion. Let's listen in. Welcome to Baker Hostetler's Federal Policy Team podcast on the 2022 midterm congressional elections. We are a little more than two weeks out from November 8th, and today we're going to take a look at the key House and Senate races that are up for grabs and uh, those races that will be determining which party controls Congress next year. I'm Chris Jones, a senior advisor with Baker Hostetler's Federal Policy Team where we provide federal government affairs consulting and lobbying services here in Washington. Uh, Today, we've got a great bipartisan panel joining us to talk all about the midterms. And uh, first, let me introduce my colleague here at Baker Hostetler, the former Democratic congressman from North Carolina, Heath Schuler. Heath, welcome. Hey, Chris. Thanks for having me on. You bet. And let me also welcome and join uh, welcome and joining us for the first time uh, is Eric Paulson, the former Republican congressman from Minnesota. Eric uh, served in the House for a decade, starting in 2008. Uh, he was on the uh, All Important Ways and Means Committee, and it was a big player in uh, some multiple important policy debates: taxes, trade, healthcare, uh, and more. Uh, among other things, today Eric is a strategic consultant at Total Spectrum. Uh, Eric Paulson, uh, welcome to the podcast. Oh, great to be with you, Chris, and also with Heath. Super. And finally, let's uh, welcome back our friend Jim Ellis. Uh, Jim is a senior political analyst for the Business Industry Political Action Committee, or BIPAC. He's also the creator of the Ellis Insight publication. And for uh, many decades, Jim has been both a practitioner of politics and campaigns, and more recently has been providing insightful analysis of national and state races. You see Jim uh, Jim regularly on TV and on the radio, and he speaks to groups uh, across the the country. Jim, you and I go way back to when we both worked on Capitol Hill, and and you've been a longtime friend of uh, of Baker Hostetler. Welcome to the podcast. Well, thank you very much. And uh, Chris, it's great to be with you and Heath and Eric. We're looking forward to this. It should be a great discussion. Uh, we, like I said, we're just a couple of weeks out from this important midterm election. Let me. Let, why don't we first talk before we get into individual races? Why don't we kind of zoom out a little bit and talk about from like a top line perspective what each of you are seeing nationally? Jim, let me let me turn it to you first for your sense of of where things are. And and uh, let me just frame this out with at the beginning of 2022, at the very beginning of the of the election year, it looked like it was going to be a Republican sweep. They had the wind at their back, inflation, the president's job approval numbers, uh, all of that. Democrats seemed to get a little bit of traction or some sea legs over the over the summer, uh, but certainly after Labor Day and now heading into October, it appears appears. See if you agree with this that uh, Republicans 
um, are once again uh, on the ascendancy. But you're you're doing a ton of traveling. Tell us what you're seeing. Well, you know, I think the biggest thing I've seen out there, and if you compare the primary turnout numbers of 2022 back to the last midterm of 2018, that tells us a lot. It tells us to me more than any poll, because these are real numbers. These are real people voting. And we have people, you know, four years ago, people like Heath and other Democratic consultants were pointing to the primary turnout numbers of 2018, and they were showing in 38 states where we can compare because of like elections in those states, there's 38 of them, that the Democratic turnout in that year was up 4.6 million people. I mean, there were 4.6 million people in that year that voted in the Democratic primary more than voted in the Republican primary. And the consultants and the strategists for the Democrats were saying, this is a precursor to the blue wave we've been predicting. And it turned out they were right. And I think that is a, pre, a pretty good precursor as to what happens. So far in 2022, we see the exact opposite. In these same states, it's 4.8 million more people have voted in Republican primaries than Democratic. And if that model remains consistent, the Republicans could be on the, on the threshold of a pretty good night come November the 8th. Well, that's interesting. And we'll, we'll, we'll dive into some of that. Uh, Heath, what are you, you know, what are you looking at? What's, what, what are you focusing on uh, as we look at the races, uh, the elections about two weeks out? You know, I, I think, you know, anytime you get into midterm elections, we always look, you know, who's sitting there at the president, you know, if the president's party has control of the house or the Senate, it usually flips, you know, and it's, so it's not a surprise that, that, you know, I think going into this, that, that, that it actually flips both in certainly in the house, but I'm, you know, I'm still, I think it actually flips in the Senate as well. I think that you're going to see a, by a very small margin that the Republicans will take both the house and the Senate. And, you know, that's not, you know, I mean, you know, being a Democrat, but that, that's not all bad from the standpoint of, you know, having, um, um, one party run every facet of the government is is usually not in the best interest for our country. Uh, so having uh, the Republicans run um, you know, the congressionals is great, and 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 then having the president, so they'll have to start negotiating. It, it'll have to be people have to start coming back to the middle. And I always say that is, you know, we always want to talk about the D and the R and, and Jim said it best. Why are there more people voting in the Republican primaries? Well, if you're like North Carolina, for an ex, uh, example, if you're an independent voter, you can choose to vote in either one of the primaries, the Democrat or the Republican primaries in the same way, you know, I now live in Tennessee. I mean, you can choose as a Democrat, you can choose to uh, or a, you don't register as you're a registered voter, not as an affiliated party. And so when you start feeling this wave come on and you, the, you know, the independent voters or the more moderate voters are going to make sure that try to get their more, the candidate they most likely view uh, as having the same policy, um, uh, you know, can make the same policy decisions they'd like for them to. So I think that's why you're getting more people voting in these primaries. And now here we are, you know, it all looks, it looks like there's, it's, it's a possible having a red wave here. Yeah. And, and divided government in 2023 will not only impact legislation and, and what comes out of Congress, but also that could have an effect on heading into the 2024 presidential election, including, the incumbent president does does divided government impact 
uh, the president's decision on whether to seek re-election or not. Eric Paulson, from a high level, as you look at the country, and I know you do a lot of traveling as well, um, what's your sense? What are you looking at and uh, what are you hearing? Yeah, you know, well, Jim talked a little bit about the turnout component and and uh, 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 he, he had mentioned sort of the historical context of the president's party, you know, poorly performing in the midterms. I would just add this is that, um, you know, what I see at, at a high 30,000 foot level is that when you take like the six top issues, for instance, um, you know, it could be the economy, immigration, border security, crime, abortion, um, you know, those top issues of all those top issues, the Republicans right now have a, a 20 to 30 percent delta of being trusted more on all those issues except for abortion. And that's where we saw some energy and enthusiasm, I think, this midsummer for Democratic candidates. So I just feel like right now Republicans are, are in a good off offensive position uh, just because those are the issues that matter the most to independent voters, where those voters are going to be swinging a lot of these races. And, you know, the Republicans in the House don't have to pick up very many seats to capture the majority, right? I think it's only seven now after some of the special elections. But, you know, they're likely to get that easily because a lot of the toss-up races um, are held by Democrats right now. And so as long as Republicans perform just average, they're, they're going to pick up the majority. The question is how large a majority will, will they pick up? And I think one interesting trend, we'll get into individual races maybe, but you know, for the first time in a long time, I think Republicans are going to capture a New England seat uh, once mm. again, either New Hampshire, Connecticut, Rhode Island or Maine. One of those seats is going to be a Republican seat again. Or, or maybe more. Or maybe more. <laughs> sure. Yeah. And we'll get into that. That's that's really interesting. Um, OK, before we get into uh, the individual races, let's 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 key off, Eric, what you brought up, some of the issues that are driving uh, the election now. Uh, certainly the economy, inflation, but also crime, also immigration, border security. Those issues seem to play favorably with, with Republicans. Uh, Democrats were, particularly in the summer after the Supreme Court decision in the Dobbs case on abortion, uh, were focusing on that issue uh, uh, and have been nearly exclusively in some of these, uh, in some of these races. And you know, different issues work differently in different states and different districts. Jim, as you go around and you're looking at uh, at the races right now, what are what are candidates talking about? What 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 messages seem to be working right uh, now? Is it is it purely um, uh, district and race specific, or are there certain issues that are working for either party, regardless of the district and state? Well, we mentioned abortion, and, and clearly the Democrats appear to be running a single-issue strategy on abortion. You look at anywhere around the country at any ad, and that's what I do now is look at all these ads. There's, only, there's one exception to this rule, but every Democrat that I've seen mentions abortion in their ad or has the complete ad or communication piece about it. And it's because they need, and it gets back to this primary turnout, the Democrats have a problem on getting their base voters and their casual voters, a casual voter is someone that votes in the presidential election, but not in the regular election, uh, or the midterm rather, and to get those people out. And they think that abortion does that for them. And that's why they're pushing it so hard. The one exception to that is Raphael Warnock in Georgia that I've seen, that he he isn't using the abortion as, as solely. Uh, you know, He's doing more localized things, which I think is an interesting approach. But the Republican mover issues in this order seem to be the inflation prices as one issue, crime and education. 
those three seem to be moving numbers pretty heavily for Republicans. And I think lately we've seen in places like Nevada, Wisconsin, and Pennsylvania, it's definitely been the crime issue uh, because the incumbents or the opponent in each of those cases to the Republican candidate uh, you know, has some discernible record on crime and particularly uh, like John Fetterman in Pennsylvania, the lieutenant governor of the state, which he is, is the chairman of the parole board, the state parole board, and that they have released thousands of criminals uh, throughout the whole state and including murderers. And they've and they've got Fetterman saying he wants to do he wants to release even more. Those types of things, I think, have really moved the numbers. And, uh, and I think we're seeing that now reflective in the polls that are coming back towards the Republicans. Yeah. All right. Well, let, let's dive into some of these races now. And let's let's start. Let's start with the with the Senate. Um, obviously, a 50 50 Senate. Dem, uh, Republicans need to pick up just one seat. Uh, they certainly look like they're they're positioned to do that uh, in Nevada. But then playing defense in a couple of other states where there's open seat. You mentioned Pennsylvania. Um, and then you have the whole issue of You've got some Republicans who are elected in the primary who may or may not be great general election candidates. We can get into that. Uh, and that's impacting things. Keith, you represented uh, North Carolina in Congress, and that's an open seat race um, there between the Republican House member Ted Budd and, and Sherry Beasley. What, what, are you, what are you seeing in North Carolina, but then also more broadly in, in the key Senate races? What are your, what are your takeaways? Well, I certainly think it's going to be a really tight race. I mean, you know, the prob- the biggest advantage, Sherry Beasley obviously uh, ran statewide uh, and was elected statewide, so she has more name recognition statewide. However, Ted Budd has come in and they have dropped a substantial amount of money to be able to protect that Republican seat. And, you know, at the end of the day, I mean, Trump won that uh, uh, North Carolina ever so slightly, you know, won 1.3% margin uh, at the end of the 2020 uh, election. Uh, so I think it's going to be a continue to be a really close race, but I think Ted Budd really, you know, really squeaks it out here at the end. Um, you know, they haven't had but one or two, one, I think, um, um, debate and, you know, that, I don't think that went where it was, you know, you could really decide who was going to, you know, no one kind of took that debate and says they can, they won the election based upon it. But, you know, there was, it's pretty divisive. You got two candidates are really to the extreme of the outer edges of the political party. So, you know, you really got about 80% of America, uh, of the people in North Carolina kind of scratching their head and saying, okay, you know, you, you they're going to have to pick, you know, which one of these that is going to be better. Uh, but I really don't think that you've seen either candidate kind of move back toward the middle after the primary. They've both been pretty on the fringes and, and stayed even the pre-primary uh, uh, talking points is where they've stayed. Um, you know, it comes nationally. I think, you know, with so many of these, uh, I, I think you're going to see a really a Republican for a longer period of time here. I think they, they win the Senate by one, by one um, seat, but, if you even look at the, the next two election cycles, Democrats have a lot of, of Democratic seats to actually to maintain. And so the, over the next couple of years, it may be um, where there's a pretty substantial margin based upon how uh, if Republicans do get in office, how they're actually to, to be able to work with uh, uh, President Biden. Yeah, the map in 2024 is, yeah. is a tough one for Democrats Very, for sure. It's a brutal map for them. 
You know, so yeah. it depends upon how they're, you know, is Democrats going to continue talking on the fringes and, and representing, you know, 10% of the American people? Or are they going to kind of move back toward the middle and try to uh, create a voice for the independent voters? Because at the very end of the day, in all of these states, we're not talking about, you know, the Democrats coming out or the Republicans coming out. They're all going to get their 40, 40, 45% on each side of that. It really gets back down to that independent voter that actually kind of votes based upon, you know, economics. You know, um, you know, obviously, you know, some of the social issues that people will, will vote on. So at the very end of the day, you know, I think too, far too often they forget who is actually going to be the deciding vote. And that's the people in the middle. For sure. Yeah, especially, uh, I mean, a midterm election uh, is all about driving up the base. Uh, but uh, those kind of soft voters, to the extent they exist uh, anymore are are important. I want to talk about them in a, in a little bit, but let me let me let me go to Eric, uh, Eric Paulson. Uh, Eric in Minnesota, you don't um, you don't have a race, but next door in Wisconsin, you do. Uh, what are you looking at, uh, whether it's in Wisconsin or any of the other states um, that uh, have have key elections uh, for the Senate this year? Yeah, I think just like Heath mentioned, you know, and Jim obviously referenced, there are going to be some tight races all over no matter what. And just as we've had some very close elections the last couple of cycles in certain states, we're likely to see that again and some late nights potentially um, uh, that uh, drag it out for, for a long period of hours into the evening. But like in Wisconsin, for instance, I mean, that's one of the seats with Ron Johnson running that Republicans knew they would have to defend. It's one of the, he was one of the most vulnerable Republicans, but it looks like he's got that the state a little bit more well in hand right now, just because he's stuck to his economic message and the crime message where there's some vulnerabilities with Barnes who's the opponent there. And so I think there's a lot of um, uh, general <laughs> enthusiasm and appreciation that that seat looks like it's kind of locked up in the Republican category. It'll just be interesting to me to see, I'd be curious to see what Jim or he think, you know, with, with Georgia coming down, you know, when you could have a 50-50 Senate or a 49-51 Senate one way or the other, if you have a runoff election again, right, that comes one month after very the election. Mm -hmm. Yeah, very possible. Just a note on Ron Johnson, if you go back to 2016, there were 30 polls conducted of the Wisconsin Senate race between Senator Johnson and, and former Senator Russ Feingold. Ron Johnson was behind in 29 of the 30 polls, and he won by three points. This time he's up by a couple of points, so it must be a big luxury for him. It's something he hasn't been experiencing, being ahead in a couple of polls. So, But I agree. I think he's on the right track there. Uh, we've got uh, close races all across the country. I'm, I'm going to be first looking at what happens in Pennsylvania and then Nevada. I think those are the two most likely to flip one way or another. I agree with you, Chris, your comment about Nevada looking pretty good for the Republicans. I think that's their number one pickup opportunity now with Adam Laxalt over the first term incumbent Senator Catherine Cortez Masto. Uh, you've got a couple of things happening there. The uh, turnout factor, the Democrats were down 20 percent over 2018 in primary turnout. Republicans were up 26 percent. And if the Republicans are doing better with Hispanics like they did in 2020, and it appears that the polling suggests they might be doing a little bit better. The Hispanic population in Nevada is up to 31% now. And, you know, those two factors, a turnout model and maybe the Hispanics breaking a little bit more to the Republicans, that could be enough right there to turn what are always close elections and could turn a close defeat for Republicans into a close game. 
You know, Heath, I think Nevada and North Carolina are very similar because in both states, both parties seem to start out with about 48% of the vote. And then they then the candidates have to scratch and claw for that final two points to get to 50. And in Nevada, Democrats win more often than Republicans. And in North Carolina, Republicans win more often than Democrats. But those two states, I think, are symbiotic in a lot of ways. Yeah, they really are. I think they kind of tell you the story of how, you know, the rest of America feels, you know, about, you know, whether it be the economy or, you know, crime, border issues. Um, you know, at, at the very end of the day, I, I truly believe that the candidate that can can actually show a little bit of um, not sticking 100 percent to their party beliefs, but really kind of show that they, they can work across the aisle and they're there to get things done. I think that really helps the unaffiliated uh, voters, those independent voters in those states to really, you know, to vote for them. Because there's, I mean, North Carolina is a perfect example. They have, there's so many independent voters. Matter of fact, there's more independent voters in North Carolina now than there are Republicans, you know, individually or Democrats individually. And they're all somewhere around, you know, that 30% mark. All right, Jim, you, you talked a little bit about Nevada. Dive in for us. Give us your take on Pennsylvania, Georgia, and Arizona. Yeah, Pennsylvania first. I mean, this is a real interesting race because you've got a, a state, I think, that's changing a little bit politically. And if you look at primary turnout, I'll go back to that again because I think it's fascinating. But remember, the Democrats are down 21% nationally in those 38 states you can compare from their number in 2018, the last midterm. But in Pennsylvania, Democratic turnout in the primary was up 58%. But Republican primary turnout was up 92%, almost double. And in fact, in both Pennsylvania and in Georgia, we saw more people vote in the 2022 Republican primary in the midterm than who voted in the 2020 presidential election in terms of the primary. And that just doesn't happen. Wow. So you see some real movement in these states. And, you know, Republican registration now is within a half a million of the Democrats in Pennsylvania. That hasn't happened in decades. So you, I think there's movement on the ground for Republicans in Pennsylvania. On the other hand, both parties have trouble at the, uh, with their candidates. I mean, Dr. Oz, the Republican, the television Dr. Oz, is not very popular. In fact, his individual favorability index is worse than Joe Biden's, whose numbers are awful in Pennsylvania. And then, of course, we know about John Fetterman, who suffered that stroke three days before the primary which is obviously a serious one. I mean, it was a blood clot in his heart that uh, caused this stroke. So he's lucky to be alive. And and he isn't fully recovered from that, clearly. Well, Jim, how much do you think so, that the uh, the debate that they're going to have, how much is that going to play a part of who wins that election? Are, are the voters really wanting yeah, to see how, that, you know, how Fetterman can actually communicate and, you know, the cognitive value of that communication uh, is during the more so than what the substance of the conversation will be? Yes, very much so. I think that's going to be an interesting debate. And, you know, it's October the 28th. And they estimate that 60% of the vote will already be in through the early voting process. And that may have, you know, a, that may play a big role in just how much the electorate changes based on what might happen in that debate. And I know Fetterman's being criticized for that, saying that's why he wanted to do it so late, because he knew that most of the vote would already be cast. So Pennsylvania is going to be very interesting. I'm looking at that 
first, and then Nevada second. I think those are the two most likely to flip from parties. And it's possible that we end up back with a tie. Let's say that Fetterman does pull out a close win in Pennsylvania and Adam Laxalt unseats uh, Cortez Masto in Nevada. We're, we're back to a tie if everything else remains the same. But Which takes us to Georgia. Georgia you've got is, is very tight. I mean, what more can you say about a candidate than what has been said about Herschel Walker? Uh, in terms, you know, he plotted to kill his ex-wife. Hey, did he pay for these abortions or did he not? Both sides are claiming that he, either he paid for them or he didn't. And he, he's getting attacked either way. Yet he's still right there. And, you know, polling here has him either down two to up two. And uh, Raphael Warnock, I think, must be, you know, just going crazy because I think he's run so far a flawless campaign, mm. raised more money than any candidate in the whole country, $111 million for that Senate race at this point, at least through September 30th. And I think his ads have been great, and I just think he's run a flawless campaign, yet he can't pull away. And so, again, that ground movement, I think, coming out of – Georgia could be very significant. Again, in primary turnout, Democrats were up there, 29%, but Republicans were up 110% over 2018. And that tells us something. And and Governor Kemp, uh, that to me has been the biggest surprise of the election cycle so far, the Georgia performance in the primary and so far in poll. I would have bet my house that David Perdue, the former U.S. Senator, would have gotten more than 22% of the vote against Brian Kemp in the Republican primary, but he didn't. And uh, Kemp's strength has truly been amazing to me, and it's something I didn't expect. And he's running, you know, substantially ahead of of Stacey Abrams here in the general election. And does that affect the turnout model? I think maybe the governor's race does drive that turnout where Kemp is able to pull Walker over the finish line. Maybe so. Maybe so. Let me ask you about that, and I don't want to get into Georgia in, a, in, a, in the runoff uh, and what kind of what that means because that's a different election. But let me ask you about that about Kemp and Stacey Abrams because that's very interesting, and it's not just in Georgia, but you know we talked about this as a midterm election. It's a base turnout election. Um, increasingly, as a country, we're divided R's and D's, um, and uh, it's and there's straight ticket voting, but in a bunch of states around the country, Jim, uh, New Hampshire, Pennsylvania, Georgia, Arizona, uh, others, there's a, at least a, a legitimate possibility that the governor of one party could win and a Senate candidate of a different party could win. How do we think about that? How do we, how do we explain that uh, in, this, in this era of uh, increased partisanship on both sides? Or at the end of the day, as you say, the strength of the top of the ticket, in this case, Brian Kemp, will be enough to bring Walker over the over the finish line. But but I'm interested in how you think about potential split ticket voting for governor and Senate in this era when it's just all about uh, partisanship. Yes, that's a very good point, Chris. And in the last few elections, we certainly have seen very little ticket splitting on races like that. But it goes back to the old axiom, I think that's true, that you know, candidates matter and campaigns matter. And there's, you know, some conjecture that the Republicans in particular haven't nominated the best candidates in, in certain instances. I think New Hampshire being the most glaring example and the Senate candidate, Don Bolduck, the retired general, 
I know the establishment Republicans attempted to deny him the nomination. The Democrats came in with, you know, a huge expenditure because Bullock didn't have much money and, and tried to get him to uh, through the Republican primary. And you could argue that it worked. He won by one point. That's one example. And then you've got others where, you know, the candidate may not be acceptable enough and that causes people to, to uh, go to a ticket splitter situation. But you're absolutely right. This is the first time we will have seen that type of thing happen, maybe on a relatively large scale in at least four election cycles. Yeah. Uh, let's go around the horn and ask, I'm curious, each of you, what do you think about um, if if uh, Raphael Warnock or whoever uh, wins uh, Georgia uh, in on November 8th, doesn't get 50% plus one, triggering the runoff in December, um, which candidate is better positioned in that context in the runoff? There's a, a stream of, of thought that uh, maybe there's some Republicans who have some concerns about Herschel Walker and some of the collateral issues that Jim raised. Uh, but if it comes down to a 50-50 Senate and Herschel Walker in December is the deciding vote on Republicans capturing the Senate, maybe those Republicans turn out, uh, kind of effectively hold their nose and, and vote for Walker over Warnock to give Republicans um, uh, the Senate. Jim, what, what do you think on that? And then we'll ask Keith Schuler and, and Eric Paulson. Well, it's a good point. We had this last time, and Georgia's the only state where you have to get a majority of the vote in the general election. Many states have that in primaries, but in the general election, you have to get 50% or they go to a secondary runoff election. I, I would bet on the winner getting over 50. And I don't think we're going to be in that situation, but it certainly is a real possibility. And then you're going to see the whole country zeroing in on Georgia once again. And uh, I think Warnock is the better candidate of the two, but then you're going to have all of these, you know, out, outside factors coming in to try to influence that election. And it's going to be a real Donnybrook if we are in that situation. I don't think we're going to be, but it's so, a possibility. It so, could happen. So, so, so you think Brian Kemp and Raphael Warnock can both get over 50% in November? Yeah, I do, but I... I mean, again, there's a possibility it does. I think Kemp does, definitely. And the question is, how does that affect the Senate race, or does it? I, I think it affects the turnout model, and that that is an indirect result could affect that Senate race. But, yeah, I think that right. is a possibility because, again, there's so much money being spent on these candidates down in a state like that that people have a familiarity with them as individuals. And a lot of people, I think, are going to vote based on what they know of them as individuals, as opposed maybe to their party affiliation. Interesting. Heath? Well, I, I concur with Jim. Um, there's going to be, if it is a runoff, there is going to be a ton of money that sinks into the state of Georgia. I mean, like no other, it will be as much money as ever spent on any runoff ever. Um, but I think at the end of the day, I think you're going to see a, a clear candidate kind of, um, you know, in a couple of weeks, you'll see who the candidate will be. Um, I, 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 I'm in one sense. I really hope. I'm, I think the people of Georgia are probably going to be. Uh, they've seen enough political ads for a lifetime in the last few uh, few months that they've been having to endure. So there may be a little bit of political fatigue there. And then it gets down to who can get the vote out. You know who's going to. You know, and you may yes. have to get. You may have to give that edge back to the uh, to the Democrats if that happens. Um, yeah. of getting the vote out. You saw what happened in the 2020 election in Georgia, especially in the more uh, urban areas. 
Yes, we certainly saw that. And, you know, if you go back to that election, it was interesting. And I do think that Trump and, and some of his uh, representatives that were telling people not to vote because it's rigged and it doesn't matter, I think that mattered because if you looked at the counties and you went into the strongest counties for both candidates, the Democrats' retention in the runoff of people coming back who voted in the general election for that runoff, and remember there were two Senate races at that time, was a, a little over 90%. And on the Republican side, it was a little over 83 And And that was the difference in terms of the closeness of that final result. And I think that the fact that the Republican turnout wasn't as strong, the retention coming back, I think that had something to do with Trump and everybody claiming it's a rigged election and that, that don't waste your time voting. I don't think we'll see that this time. And that may have an influence. Hmm. Eric? You know, um, I, I don't disagree with uh, the comments that both the Jim and Heath had made, but, but I can definitely see a scenario where the libertarian candidate for Senate in Georgia, you know, picks up enough of votes or a high enough percentage to prevent anyone from getting to 50 percent. And we end up in that runoff election in early December. And then I think it's just a matter of, you know, a nationalized election where the state of the economy, where is the state of the economy at? Where is the presidential approval at at that time based on the price of gas, groceries, inflation, et cetera? And that's how people are going to vote in terms of deciding the makeup of the Senate if they like what's happening in Washington or if they don't uh, at that point. Yeah, I, I agree with what Eric said, and that certainly is a possibility. Um, I will wonder if they have to go to a runoff again, just like they did in 2020. I wonder if there'll be a move to get rid of that runoff law, <laughs> that general election runoff law. I bet if it was on the ballot, people would vote to get rid of it. <laughs> yeah, about the I was going to say the about the only good thing about that runoff is at least it's it would be December and not January, like it was two years ago. Yes, uh, that was bad. Okay, all right. So let's uh, let's move on to the House. We got a couple of former members of Congress here: Heath Schuler, Eric Paulson. Uh, Jim Ellis and I were congressional staffers on the House side, um, so let's uh, let's talk about the House. Um, just a handful of seats are needed for Republicans to capture the majority. Conventional wisdom from just about everybody is a combination of redistricting, Democratic retirements, and kind of the historical midterm patterns that we've all been talking about. They're all going to combine and come together to to give Republicans the majority in the House. The question really is the margin: how many seats do they have? And that's just not important, uh, not only for November 8th, but for Kevin McCarthy and the vote for Speaker. And then in 2023, too, how Republicans manage legislatively, how they deal with a bunch of issues, including there's going to be a debt ceiling vote in the middle of next year and a bunch of other things, too. So the margin is really going to matter and really going to be important. Jim, you want to give us a high level overview here of uh, where you're at in the House? And then I want to turn it over yes, to sir. Heath and Eric and, and then also talk about a couple of specific races, too. Yeah, I'd be happy to. The way I, I do it, I like to take the competitive races out of the party division of, of the matrix of the whole 435. And I think there's 89 seats where there's some level of competition, where it wouldn't be out of the realm of possibility in a wild night that, that you could see one candidate or the other win a seat they probably shouldn't. So I have 89 districts in the competitive category. And if you take that out of the 435 and then build it back in when people win these seats, the Republicans to take the bare one seat majority would only need to win 34 of those 89, whereas the Democrats would need to win 55. Why the disparity is because 
The Democrats simply have to protect more vulnerable seats than the Republicans do. So I think that becomes very, very realistic for Republicans. And of those 89, only 23 are held by Republicans right now. So they have a lot less to defend. It's the opposite problem that the uh, Republicans have in the Senate, where they have to defend a lot more. In the House, the Democrats have to defend a lot more. So that gives the Republicans the advantage. So they only have to win 34, any 34 of those 89, and the Democrats would have to win any 55. So it's quite a difference there, just to gain one-seat majorities for both parties. And I think my count right now, I've got the Republicans up between 20 and 23. I was on a program last week with a Democratic consultant, and he and I do this uh, routine every couple of years on predicting what's going to happen. And he told me, yeah, he says, yeah, you guys probably take the House, meaning Republicans. But I told him my count was 20 to 23. His was 16 to 18. So we're really not that far off. And that translates under you know, the 20 to 23 model. It puts the Republicans in the low 230s. And as we know, the majority number is 218. And that historically has been about where the Republicans have been. And I kind of think it's going to end up being that way. It's a redistricting year. So you're not going to see the wild swings that we've seen in some elections in the past. Jim, what's that high watermark? Say it is a Republican sweep uh, and it, it's a big night for Republicans instead of uh, 20 to 23. What's what's kind of a, a best case scenario for them? Oh, I'd probably add 10 to 12 to that and put them in the 240s. Keep in mind, since they took the majority originally in 1994, the high water mark, and they only reached this one time, was 247. And I, I can't see it going beyond that. Yeah, yeah. All right, Eric Paulson, what do you think uh, about the House races as you look at it? Yeah, I, I, I feel pretty good about the House races from a Republican perspective. Uh, Jim kind of outlined that. I, I, I think it's also interesting to note that the 2020 election cycle, the House Republicans did well. They picked up 14 seats, yeah. even, even when Biden won the presidency. So they've kind of got a head start already. Um, you know, they kind of banked those already. And now, you know, they should get a net gain of 20 is definitely within within the ballpark. There's no doubt. And I, I think regionally, there's some really good trends. Uh, if you look at Nevada, if you look at New York, yep. if you look at Florida with redistricting, and if you look at New England, like we mentioned earlier, Republicans have some real good regional trends to pick up some seats in those those areas, which are going to lead to their majority. Yeah. Heath, what's your take? Well, I think it's kind of sad when you look at the 435 races in the country and we only have, you know, 80 of those races even. And it's probably really what, Jim, 40 races that are really maybe yeah. 50 that yeah. are really, really in play. That goes. Yeah, I think most people would laugh at my 89 number. but well, I, I, did, was really I did, Jim. I did chuckle here <laughs> that it was 89 because, I mean, it's usually, you know, that 40 to 60 that's typically uh, a really racist. And I think that just goes to show you how state, you know, however state by state changes in, in my state, you know, or state legislature, you know, draws the lines and how often do they draw the lines for themselves? I mean, it just, that is, you know, it, it's just a sad note that that is called the people's house. And Eric and I took a lot of pride in representing our our, our districts, our states, and our country, because it was the people's house. And, but to only have so few of races that are really in play just really goes to show you the mess that we have made uh, the, the house. I mean, it is a complete mess uh, that we gerrymandered districts where people can maintain to have a job for life. 
Um, and ultimately that's where we've ended up. So we end up why people are in Congress for such a long time. A, there's three parts to it. One is for greed and power. Two, it's for the people that truly are doing all the right things and for the right reasons. That's probably a third of them. And then you got another one. It's the only jobs they could ever hold down. There's no other job you'd ever hire <laughs> to do something for. And so, you know, and, and those are the people that are always in the safest seats. And so what do they do? They only have to worry about a primary. And then so you, you, that's why you're getting this rhetoric from the fringes on the outside. They're running so far to the right and so far to the left that, you know, the people in the middle are kind of shaking their head and said, I'm tired of politics. I've heard enough. They don't represent my viewpoints. And I think that's why, you know, you know, I can't believe we don't have as number of people that come out to vote every time. We don't have the, the people that are energized and really wanting to make a change. So it's sad. The people's house, you only have 40 to 60 uh, races that really are going to influence the outcome of who becomes the speaker. You know, and yeah. Heath, I, I should mention this. I, I actually, I completely agree with you there. And think of those 40 seats that are truly competitive. That's where all the money is being spent by all the outside groups, you know, and, and that's where the focus is. It, it's, it's incredible uh, that, you know, the, those of us like yourself and myself who have represented those districts that have, you know, had some independent ticket splitters, for instance, or have gone back and forth, have been in the target zone. That's where all the money gets spent by outside groups. Well, and Eric, I mean, I mean, put the two of us and, you know, Mike Ferguson was in the same seat. I mean, we were, you know, we weren't voting 100 percent with our party. We were voting our district. We were voting what America was. And at the end of the day, those seats are the ones we're missing the most valuable members of Congress in those seats. Both sides of the aisle. It's that the Tuesday group, the blue dogs, the moderate Democrats and Republicans. We are losing the best members of Congress because of gerrymandered districts. We could spend a whole hour on that, uh, but that's certainly a worthy a worthy topic. We just got a few minutes left, and we do, we do want to get into some specifics. Uh, you know, and Eric had brought up New England, Jim. Can you talk about that a little bit? We've got a couple of New Hampshire Republicans have been uh, have been wiped out in uh, in in House races in New England uh, in recent cycles. But there's New Hampshire. There's a legitimate opportunity in Rhode Island maybe even Connecticut. Um, what are you looking at from a big picture in New, in, uh, in New England? Yes, there is more competition this time. You've got, of course, uh, former Congressman Bruce Poliquin attempting to come back in Maine in the second district of Maine. You might remember that from the presidential election. Maine and Nebraska are the two seat states rather that split their electoral votes. So the congressional districts each have their own electoral vote. And this is one that flips to the Republicans. And it's actually the most Republican seat. This is the second district of Maine, that northern seat. They have two districts. And it is the most Republican seat in the nation that elects a Democrat. And former Congressman Bruce Poliquin is attempting to come back there. They have this ranked choice system. That's what beat him in 2018. Uh, and so that's a real race. Then you come down to New Hampshire. Those two seats are always in play. Redistricting really didn't change the map at all. And you've got the first district of New Hampshire. I lived there for a couple of years when I lived in the state. That district has defeated more incumbents than any seat in the whole country since 2004. And so that one's very much alive. And I'm going to be looking first at that on election night to see which way New Hampshire is going, because if Republicans take either one of those two districts, and they're competitive in both, uh, that, that, that would be step one towards a Republican majority. 
And, and then you've got, you mentioned Rhode Island. This is a D plus 17 seat, according to the 538 data organization. It's an open seat now with Congressman Jim Langevin uh, retiring. And it looks like the Republican, Alan Fung, who was the party's nominee for governor twice, and he was mayor of one of the cities there, has a real chance to pick that seat up for the Republicans. That would be a huge change and a huge plus for the GOP. And then in Connecticut, uh, really the uh, Northwestern seat, they have five districts there, the fifth district, that's currently represented by Democrat Johanna Hayes, and she has a strong candidate against her, a Republican by the name of George Logan, and he would be one of the few African-American Republicans to win election, although I believe there's 22 uh, African-Americans running uh, as Republicans this time for the U.S. Yes. Um, I just have one race I want to ask you about. I spent some uh, spent some time in uh, New Jersey politics. Talk about uh, a couple of those races there, including the uh, the seventh district. Well, Tom Malinowski there is the Democratic incumbent in the in the seat. Chris, your old boss, Mike Ferguson, held for yep. for four terms, and uh, the you know on redistricting he did not fare well. And the it's a commission situation, but it's a politicians' commission. And then they have a tiebreaker that was clearly going on the Democrat side. But the Democrats agreed pretty well to make that district more Republican, actually, because they were trying to feed three other marginal districts and shore up those other three. So I think the Republicans, in the person of Tom Kane Jr., whose father was the governor a long time ago, and Tom Kane was in the state legislature for a long time and was the minority leader of the state Senate, he's got a real shot to pick that up. He ran last time. And only lost 51 to 49. This seat now is four points better toward for the Republicans. And so he's he's got a real chance to win. And I think this is a seat that they've they, the Republicans, have already marked in their column as a must-win if they're going to take the majority. Right. Uh, talk a little bit, Jim, about Oregon, uh, the playing yeah. field there, <clears throat> and then also further west, Alaska and Sarah Palin. Okay. <laughs> Oregon is going to be a real interesting state. Now, obviously, we all know they've got a lot of problems there with that Portland situation and the homeless and the riots and everything that was going on there. And what's driving the the, the state is this three-way race for governor. So it's an open seat. The governor, Kate Brown, who is not liked, cannot run again because of term limits. So you have a Democratic candidate, a Republican, and a strong independent by the name of Betsy Johnson, and she was a Democratic state legislator for 20 years, running now as an independent. But she's more on the moderate side. She was doing real well for a while and actually had even more money than the other two. She's dropped off the pace, but is taking enough votes where, and there's a new poll out today that again has the Republican, Christine Drazen, leading the race. And uh, maybe we get 35, 36, 37% of the vote, but that might be enough to actually win the seat for the Republicans on the Oregon governor's race. That would be a huge change. But there, but it's more than that because you've got three House races there. Oregon got a new seat in reapportionment. And uh, Republicans are very much alive and might at least win, I think, one of those three. The polling suggests they have a shot at winning three. I don't think that'll happen, but I do think they might be able to win one. And even that would be a seismic change politically in a state like Oregon. Who would have ever guessed we'd be talking about Democrats possibly winning in Georgia, but 
Republicans winning in Oregon. That's just yes. amazing how things <laughs> change over the last 10 years. Yes, it is. Now, Chris, you asked about the Alaska situation. That is a bizarre situation, yeah. what has happened in terms of the election system. And the reason these seats are now in play is because they, the people voted on this proposition barely in 2020 to change their system. And some of these states, Louisiana started this, California's got it, Washington has it, this top two system where everybody's on the same ballot at a primary, and then the top two people advance to the general election. And in Alaska, they changed it. They added not only the jungle primary, but the top four finishers from a primary advance to the general election. And then they go to this ranked choice system where you have to rank your votes from one to four. And I hate that system because I think <laughs> some people get two votes and others don't. It's, it's just a bizarre system. But anyway, so what happened in the special election after Congressman Don Young passed away the, the aggregate Republican vote count there was 60%, but they lost the seat in ranked choice to the Democrat Mary Peltola. Now, she's got a pretty good public image right now and looks pretty strong in the general election. It's the same candidates, again, on the ballot. We go to a top four. It's going to come down to probably, it will definitely come down to a top two. This will take two weeks, by the way, after the election to figure this out. And it looks like Peltola could actually survive this uh, again and take what should be a safe Republican seat through the system. Uh, and if, I'm convinced the Lisa Murkowski people were behind the system because she appears to be the biggest beneficiary of it. Remember, she lost the 2010 Republican primary. That is her biggest impediment to reelection another Republican. And this system allowed her to basically bypass the Republican Party because she was certainly going to come in at least fourth as the incumbent. And now that seat's in play, but not from a partisan standpoint, because her main opponent is another Republican, a Trump-endorsed former statewide official by the name of Kelly Shabaka. And so this one's almost assured going into the ranked choice system, and it might be interesting to see what happens in the end. But uh, I, my guess is... Murkowski probably does not come in first place on election night. Hmm. Hmm. Eric and Heath, what uh, what house races are, are you guys tracking, and what do you want to ask Jim about in our final minutes here? Well, Jim, I I think maybe you should comment a little bit on on some of these Texas races because you've seen some sure. of these Texas Latino uh, Republicans yeah. do very well on some of the border districts, uh, which has been a, a change over the last oh, yeah. uh, two four years. Oh yes, actually quite quite a long time now. And a, um, a colleague of mine has done a lot of polling down on the, he's a Texas pollster, and he has done a lot on the border issue and testing those, those particular districts. And you know, what has been the big mover there. It has not been the immigration issue at all. It has been the Green New Deal. And he said they hate the Green New Deal. Why? Because it's cost them energy jobs. And they want more energy production. They want more of the economy. They, the border is a factor, particularly the way things, people coming across that border, and it's caused chaos in that area. But the Green New Deal and what it does to the economy there and their, and their community's jobs is driving those people into the Republican column. I think the Republicans will pick up at least one and maybe two seats down just on the Texas border. And then you have... They already won one in a special election. Now, that district has changed a lot in redistricting. So this is a different district 
that Congresswoman Myra Flores must run in, and it's much more democratic, and she's running against another incumbent Democratic congressman. So they, they, that's going to be a very difficult seat to hold, but the Republicans probably pick up the open seat next to it. So coming out of the border, maybe up one is, is a real possibility for Republicans, but it's largely due to, again, to the economic issues that the Biden administration policies has really wrecked havoc economically on that region. How, does Henry Cuellar hang on in uh, uh, Texas being? Well, he, he, he was another one down there. I mean, he had problems in the primary. Uh, the FBI was after him, you know, for uh, some overseas thing that didn't go anywhere. He barely won the Democratic primary against a hard left candidate. Uh, Cuellar is probably the most conservative bipartisan congressman on the Democratic side in the whole country. Right. And he has a strong opponent by the name of Cassie Garcia, the Republican, in that election. Uh, his district is rated as a D plus seven, but um, it's certainly one to watch on election night. I, I would, I think Cuellar probably survives. Yeah, but it's uh, it's certainly in play. What about the Utah race out with uh, uh, Mike Lee with the independent uh, candidate yes. there? I mean, I, I think that may be the sleeper race in the whole entire Senate. Yes, I agree with you totally, Heath, because this is a real interesting play that the Democrats made there. I think it was a smart move. Now, Evan McMullen is an independent, and he ran for president back in 2016. He's from Utah, and he did particularly well in that election in 2016 in Utah. In fact, Trump won the state, but with only 46% of the vote. Hillary Clinton only got 27% in Utah, but Evan McMullen, as an independent, received 21% of the vote. So he's using that base to propel himself into this race against Senator Mike Lee, who's running for a third term. So what he was able to do is coalesce with the Democrats and the Democratic Party then at their state convention agreed they would file no candidate. So there's no candidate, there's no Democrat in that race. They've coalesced behind the independent Evan McMullen because they knew that a three-way race, there's no way they could beat Lee. And they figured, well, McMullen's not our cup of tea ideologically, but he's better than Lee from our perspective, and this is the only chance we might have to defeat Lee. Polling suggests that strategy was correct because there's only about a three-point difference between the two of them in the, uh, in the latest poll. And I agree with you, Heath. People have asked me on these interviews and things, what is, what's my sleeper race? What's my surprise? And I always go to that one uh, because it's a unique situation. It was a good strategic move from the Democrats. I think in the end, Lee still wins, but that is one to watch on election night. Yes. <laughs> McMullen has, has pledged to caucus neither with the Republicans nor the Democrats. If it's 49-49 or whatever the numbers are, and he's the deciding one, that would just be a whole new layer of chaos uh, in the lo- Senate. Becomes the most powerful member in the, oh. in, the <laughs> in the universe. <laughs> Absolutely. Yeah, I, mean, I mean, he's sort of damned if he does and damned if he doesn't on that question. And I know Lee's been pressing him, where do you caucus? And he tried to avoid that question for a long time. I mean, he can't say the Republicans because that would cost him his Democratic support, which is the only reason he's got a shot. And if he says the Democrats and any Republicans thinking of voting for him leave. But but guys, you know, you, Eric and Heath, I mean, if he's there as an independent without a party and without committee assignments, then correct? Correct. Uh, correct. I mean, he becomes a little bit less effective, at least in delivering back for the state. Am I wrong in that? 
Yeah, you, he'd ultimately have to have to decide which party he was going to caucus with. Yeah. yeah. So that that would be a you're right. That, you're right, Chris. That would be another whole level of chaos if, yeah. if he were to win that race. I could see either side uh, giving him uh, the chairmanship of the finance committee <laughs> if he would agree to caucus with him. Um, back on house races, Jim, real quick. Katie Porter in Orange County uh, for her, uh, and yet she is in some level of difficulty. How real is that? I, I think it's somewhat really. I mean, she's going to talk about money. She's going to have over $20 million that she's raised. She's the most prodigious fundraiser on the Democratic side in the House. And so this is an Orange County seat. Now, she was from the Irvine area. And the thing that puts this in play is the district that she's running in now is 60% different than what she currently has. So in other words, 60% of the people that live there have not had her as their member of Congress. And she's running against a Republican by the name of Scott Baugh. He's a former state legislator and chairman of the Orange County Republican Party. Now, I was surprised, frankly, though, they have a jungle primary in the state. And the jungle primary is always a good indicator of how strong a candidate is. And he made it into the runoff, but, you know, she, she beat him by about 20 points. And I was surprised by that in the primary. I mean, this should be pretty competitive. It's a little bit of a Democratic seat, but uh, I was surprised at her strength in that primary against Baugh, who I think is a good candidate for the Republicans. But I, I got to believe that one comes up short for the Republicans. Is, sure. is is any of that race, uh, you know, is it playing, is, is part of the play there that she has ambitions to run statewide and some of the folks, you know, say, hey, just focus on the House seat. Don't think about running for Senate or something like that. Yeah, I haven't, I haven't seen that. I haven't watched too many of the messages in that one, but um, yeah, it could be. I haven't actually seen that said about them, but because everybody, the Democrats are just concentrating on abortion and the Republicans are trying to talk only about inflation crime and the and education but uh, that that's a good point it could be i am I'm, I'm always mystified as how she raises so much money over all these other people and has such a national base to be able to do that but she does and at the end of the day though when you have that much i'm not sure how, i mean how much as, as you two both know way better than chris and me there's only so much you can spend in these races uh, in in a race for the house and she's obviously at that level. So I'm not sure how much more her financial advantage is really going to play there. But it, it's a seat to watch. You know, there's several California seats that are in play, probably six of them. And uh, we may have to wait until Thanksgiving to see how those turn out with the way they count the ballots out there. The election that never ends. Uh, yes. Okay. <laughs> well, and they say the reason it takes so long is because they verify the signature on every ballot that comes in in the mail. And it's almost all mail now. And so, um, but they also don't count every day, I notice. If you go on their sites, they do a good job of telling you what's out there. And then they announce, oh, our next counting day is going to be like next Tuesday. <laughs> so <laughs> they're under no urgency. The state allows them 33 days after the election to count the ballot before certification. And it's going to take that long, I think, before we know the outcome of several of those races, including that one that you mentioned on Katie Porter. Yeah. Okay. All right. We are uh, beyond time here. We could go on for another hour talking about all these races. One final question. Uh, it's a two-parter. Uh, it will make it kind of a speed round. Where are you guys on where the Senate ends up 
And does Joe Biden run for re-election in 2024? Eric Paulson. Well, I'm going to say the President Biden is not going to run for re-election in 2024. I'll say the Republicans in the House are going to pick up 20 seats, and I'm going to say that we're going to end up at a 50-50 tie on the Senate. Heath. Well, I mean, uh, I think uh, <laughs> you nailed it, Eric. Garrett's, I mean, that's spot on. I think it's either Republicans by one in the Senate or it's a 50-50 tie. Republicans take the House, and I, I too, do not believe that Joe Biden will run for president. Jim? Yeah, this is. Uh, we don't have much disagreement here. I would, I would say the same thing. Uh, either fifty or fifty-one in the Senate, and uh, again the twenty to twenty-three in the House. Yeah, and I'm, I'm with and all no, you guys. Biden doesn't run again, and the and the Democratic nominee will be Kamala Harris, because name a vice president who was run for president after their their president leaves, and did not get the party nomination. I'm not saying she wins the general, but it's never happened. And don't forget that the White House is going to control the new rules on how to nominate a Democratic candidate. They are going to change the rules significantly. Iowa is gone as the first state for the Democrats. And you watch that uh, that'll be that will be set for Kamala Harris to become the nominee. Well, that'll be a whole other podcast for us uh, to devote uh, to devote all that time, guys. Thank you so much. This has been a fantastic uh, discussion. Uh, like I said, we could all, you know, we all are are uh, come from Congress and come from politics, and we could talk all afternoon um, about this. But it's been a, a great discussion. Thank you, you all, for your time, Jim Ellis of BIPAC and Ellis Insight. Jim, thanks a bunch. Thank you. Thank you. You bet. Former Congressman Eric Paulson now with Total Spectrum. Eric, thank you so much for joining us. Yeah, thank you. And uh, my colleague here at uh, Baker Hostetler, former Congressman Heath Schuler. Heath, this was a, a great conversation, um, and uh, we need to do this again. Absolutely. Chris, can't thank you enough. It was great being on with uh, Jim and Eric. It's always great uh, uh, with Baker Hostetler bringing in some real outside expertise to, to join the conversation. You bet. And thanks to our listeners, too, for uh, joining Baker Hostetler's Federal Policy Team podcast on the uh, midterm elections. And uh, we will talk to you again soon. Thanks for joining us. Thank you, former Congressman Heath Schuler, former Congressman Eric Paulson, Jim Ellis and Chris Jones. It was a great discussion about the upcoming 2022 midterm congressional elections. If you have questions for Baker Hostetler's Federal Policy Team, Chris's contact information is in the show notes. As always, thanks for listening to Baker Hosts. Comments heard on Baker Hosts are for informational purposes and should not be construed as legal advice regarding any specific facts or circumstances. Listeners should not act upon the information provided on Baker Hosts without first consulting with a lawyer directly. The opinions expressed on Baker Hosts are those of participants appearing on the program and do not necessarily reflect those of the firm. For more information about our practices and experience, please visit bakerlaw.com.